This is Block by Block, a community news program from WPPM LP 106.5 FM, where we explore issues affecting the Philadelphia area with news reports from members of the community. I'm Laura Rosenbach. And I'm Robin Markle. In the next half hour, we'll hear stories from our community news reporters about tracing your family history, mental health in African-American communities, and the end of a program that offered food assistance for low-income households. First, a group of Philadelphians is pushing to rename a street to honor an important figure in the city's civil rights history. Taney Street is currently named after Supreme Court Chief Justice Roger Taney, who wrote the Dred Scott decision in 1857, which declared that black people could not be citizens and that slavery should remain legal. Rather than continuing to honor Roger Taney, activists are hoping to convince city leaders to give the street a new name. I recently spoke with two members of the, the renamed Taney Coalition. My name is Samaya Brown. You can call me Sam if you like. I'm Leo Vicaro, and uh, I am really excited, actually, that we have the opportunity to talk about Carolyn LeCount and let other Philadelphians know this incredible story of someone from our own community and what she was able to do during her own time. Why should we change the name of the street? So currently, the street is unfortunately named for Roger Tawney, who uh, was not just a man of his times. Uh, He was seen as someone that really caused the Civil War because he ruled in a decision that was met with wide controversy, and he was seen as a hero for his Jacksonian Democratic supporters. The reason why, even though it is 2023 and the street name still hasn't been changed, is intentional. That's not an accident. This is not the first time that somebody has tried to get that street name changed. Um, It's just going to be the last because we're going to make sure that it gets done. (laughs) In Philadelphia, we have about 1,500 statues across our city, but only four of them are of women. We really are lacking representation of historic women, let alone women from Philadelphia. Not one of these monuments, statues, buildings, streets, or flags were erected accidentally or out of ignorance. It's with purposeful intent. And the intent is to make Black Americans not feel welcome in this country. So symbolic or not, to take down that name has a real significance and a real impact on the community. And that's why we are so dedicated to making sure it gets down. I'm a very proud Philadelphian, and I know this city is the cradle of liberty. I'm very proud of the fact that we have Independence Hall in our city and that we have the Benjamin Franklin Parkway and we have all sorts of things that are named after the people that created the world's oldest democracy of the United States of America. And the person who currently has the street named after him was someone that did not stand up for democracy. Many Philadelphians went on to go fight, and a great many of them went on to die in the Civil War, fighting against what Roger Tawney said was the actual foundation of this country. So there's a lot of precedent behind getting rid of that street name. And I think it is time that we honor someone who is worth being honored, someone who should be honored, 
and that we no longer honor someone who uh, did not advance democracy and did not stand up for the fundamental ideas that make this country great. So what would it mean to both of you if the street was renamed? One of the reasons why white supremacy has persisted throughout the entire proliferation of our country is because only one story is getting told. It is not an accident or without effort that we know about Roger Taney and he has a street named after him. And we don't know about the stories of Caroline LeCount and Octavius Cato and all of these other important Americans who are doing amazing things to actually help this country become what it is today. Caroline LeCount was born near 9th and Rodman Streets in South Philadelphia. She famously was engaged to Octavius Cato, who is a well-known civil rights leader of the Civil War era. On March 25th of 1867, Carolyn LeCount became Philadelphia's Rosa Parks. She stood at 11th and Lombard Streets. She was 21 years old, and she demanded that the streetcar stopped for her, and she made sure that she took the conductor to court. So it's not exactly the same story as Rosa Parks, but a big similarity between Carolyn LeCount and Rosa Parks is that neither one of those women were random women. They were all part of a larger civil rights movement of their place and era. Rosa Parks was an active member of the NAACP who decided to take action specifically in the aftermath of the Emmett Till lynching. And Carolyn LeCount was responding to a larger coalition of Philadelphians who had successfully lobbied Pennsylvania's government to change the law and end segregation on public transit. So it's not important that she has a street named after her. It's important that her story be told. And you cannot tell that story if you are actively preventing opportunities for that conversation to take place. What's the best way for just the average Philadelphian to help you out? Number one, you can always contact your city council member and tell them that you would like for that street name to be changed in honor of Caroline LeCount. That is probably the biggest impact that would happen right now. Uh, you can do that through email. You can actually call them up on the phone. Um, there is uh, opportunity every time city council meets and has uh, agenda items to vote on that that can be on there. So they can do it more than once. You know, sometimes you do have to be kind of a pain in the keister to get things done. But if you would really like to help us, if you could be a pain in the keister of city council, that would be great. If you agree with us, please call and we can have an occasion to celebrate Philadelphia's Rosa Parks, Carolyn LeCount. You can keep up with the latest from the renamed Taney Coalition by following them on social media. They're on Instagram and Twitter at rename underscore Taney. That's spelled T-A-N-E-Y. You can also follow them on Facebook, where the coalition goes by Rename Taney ST. Many people are interested in finding out more about their family history, but that can be particularly challenging for Black families in America who may only have records that go back a few generations. Black by Black reporter Kathy Brown spoke to an expert in genealogy, Dr. Lynn Wright, who is also Kathy's cousin. 
What is genealogy exactly? Genealogy is the study of one's self, like a genome. Uh, If you think about every species on the planet belongs to some type of, they have some type of classification. So with genealogy, or you might have also have heard the term ancestry, basically what it entails is the tracing of one's lineage. Uh, Going up, we call that your descendancy, the people that are alive today. Going backwards, we call that ascendancy or your ancestors. So genealogy seeks to tie those pieces together so that you can know from whence you came and also ultimately know where you're going because it's what you know that will unlock the unknown, what you don't know. So you kind of start gathering bits of information that you know about yourself and your parents. And if you're fortunate enough to still have your grandparents, uh, you can get information from them or interview them would actually be a better option. If you have your great-grandparents or even have memories of them, some of you may have only had them in your life for a little while. I was fortunate enough to have one of my great-grandparents in my life until I was a high schooler. So I was able to extract on those visits uh, to her in the South. Also, once you start thinking back, you start kind of tying pieces together about your family, your kinfolk. What makes this a thing that should be important? I can remember being in school, and I'm sure maybe some of your listeners can identify to that point in school in which you do that project where you have to trace your family tree. And it's typically easy or easier for people of other ethnicities to trace their generations back, but it becomes uh, difficult for many African-Americans and people of color beyond one or two generations. So in studying of genealogy, a systematic study of genealogy, will allow us to trace our ancestors back even prior to the emancipation. We each have a maternal and a paternal side. Even within those sides, there is a paternal and a maternal line. So pretty much what I started, I started with my parents and I started with my father. And simply because I knew the most about his people. So that's where I started. So as a point of beginning, whichever parent you know the most about, that's where you start. So it was easier for me because I spent time with many of his uncles and aunts, my grandfather's brothers and sisters, my grandmother's brothers and sisters, and then even my father's grandmother, which was my great-grandmother. So it was easy for me to begin on that side. And then once I started filling in some of the blanks on that side, I began to look at my mom's side. In order to not frustrate yourself right out the gate, go with the side with the parent that you have the most information about. What's some resources that they should seek out to help them on their path? Begin to look at some of the vital records, birth certificates, death certificates. In this country, birth certificates didn't become standard until the 1900s. So prior to that, you're basically looking for records that were written in family Bibles or in other religious documents. But those vital records, marriage records, census records, I use census records every day. There's not one piece of research that I've done for myself or anybody else that I have not looked at the census records, and particularly the 1870 census, which was the first census taken after emancipation. And that's pretty much the trail most of us will pick up to find your family members who was a good likelihood that they were enslaved prior to 1865. So the census, military records, the military keeps excellent records. So if your family member or your ancestor has served, there will be a record. 
You can check out the National Archives. They have pictures of many of the men and now women who served in the military, but that is also a great place to look. Social Security. They know when that Social Security number was issued to your loved one, and they also know when that person died. So that's another resource that you can tap that are all free that you can look into to get information. The biggest resource, if you're inclined to do so, would also to be DNA tested. What is the information that could truly help us as we do this research? What are the types of things that my ancestors died from? What did they struggle with? What types of diseases? So if I know that my great-grandparents and great-great and third-great and fourth-great and so on, if I know all of these people struggled with heart disease and heart disease killed them, then that gives me an advantage so that I can govern myself more accordingly as I grow older. And aside from knowing the health concerns of it, to know the contributions that we have made to this country and to the world in a broader sense. I mean, not just, okay, you know, we all know about slavery and we all know that we helped build this nation, but to know specifically that your ancestors fought in the Civil War, to know their names, to know where they were mustered out of, to see the records of people who received their survivor's pension. To me, that's powerful. And I've always been a lover of history, but even when I look at history now, I look at it through a different lens because I have the names of my people who are part of this history and not just in a big general way saying, well, African-Americans did this and Africans-Americans did that. I can tell you who, what, when, and where. And also the fact that the things that people say about us that are not true at all, home ownership. I can trace records going back 100, 150 years, home ownership, farm ownership, savings money that was saved after the Civil War in the Freedmen Bank when people say that often people of color don't know how to save. We have no precedent for that. Well, I have records that say the contrary. College graduates. I have a college graduate from 1899 who became not only a pastor, but he became a professor at a university. So I see my quest in education as coming straightly through my DNA because I come from generations and generations of educators. What's the most important records to get a hold of for ourselves? Census records, records that show land grants, records that show deeds. Like I have the deeds to my grandparents' home. That's powerful. That is so powerful to see that they did this. They came to Philadelphia as part of the Great Migration, and they achieved the American dream. Just to uh, have bank records, to see that, yeah, my people did save money. So when I was the bank officer in second grade from the PSFS, I understood from whence that desire came because it's hardwired in, and that's the thing you find out about your DNA. You don't know what your ancestors were capable of, and you don't know what you're capable of until you see it lived out or fleshed out by doing this research. If you had to give just a last piece of encouragement to someone who is even thinking about doing this, what would that encouragement be? It would be uh, twofold, not to give up, persistence pays off, and secondly is to go where the evidence takes you. And don't be afraid because you might be crossing a cultural line, a racial line, 
or a religious line, and particularly if you do DNA, because DNA does not lie. And if it tells you that someone is your third or fourth great-grandparent, then they are. So with those two things, to not give up, to continue to look, continue to search, continue to just press forward, and you will find the answers that you're seeking. The information is slowly what I really want. So if you put those things in perspective and purpose in your heart not to give up, you will be able to find your ancestors. According to the Department of Health and Human Services, African Americans are 20% more likely to experience serious mental health problems than the general population. Block by Block's Felicia Kasher brings us this story about the relationship between mental health and spirituality in Black communities. Recently, there has been a rise in the number of African American people discussing mental health wellness and going to therapy. This movement is promising. Throughout history, Black people have not had the healthiest experiences getting support as it relates to caring for the mind. Some of it is cultural and spiritual differences. Some of it leans into racial disparities and unfair treatment in the mental health profession, which in many cases left people in our community without the support and treatment they really needed. A Konfo is what they call the priest or the shaman, so I'm in a Konfo. Today, I will be taking a journey with my friend, a Khan priest, Nana Akonfo Akasawa Inyo Ajitawe, and explore the connections or disconnections within the Black community's mental well-being and its relationship with our spirituality. So Nana in the Akan tradition of West Africa is a honorific title. It could mean someone who's anywhere from a, you know, a state leader or elder. But in my case, I am a graduated Akan priest in the Akan tradition of West Africa. So that title of Nana is um, bestowed upon me for religious purposes. I asked my friend if she believed the enslavement of African people presented any unique challenges in the Black community's mental health now. Very much so. I think that when we as enslaved people were brought here, we were asked to leave our foundations, which has always been in the African community, ancestor reverence, our belief in the elements and the deities and spiritual energies that we honored were based on those energies. When we were at home, we would go to our elders. We would seek from the shamans, just general counseling, just being able to sit at the foot of elders and talk about the things that were going on in our personal lives, as well as uh, receiving different rituals, baths, medicines, herbs, and things to help us along. We've been cut off from that for almost five 500 years. Do you still believe in going to therapy? Do you still believe in? Okay. Absolutely. I think that we need 
when we're in a state of depression, mm -hmm. when we're in a state of knowing once we come to the realization that I really need help with this, I can't do this all on my own, and that I need another perspective, then we pray for the clarity to know when to go out and get that other help. That other help may be a therapist. The other help may be your minister. The other help may be other community places where you can go and share in a group setting. It could be all of those things. But to be able to realize that there's so many resources out here for us and we don't have to suffer alone and in silence. Mm. What would you say to someone who is struggling to integrate mental health care and their religious or spiritual practice? I feel like whatever your religious philosophy is, if it's Christianity, if it's Islam, if it's Buddhism, whatever it is, all of these modalities are branches on a tree, right? And we can pick from those and take what we need. If this is sustaining me, then make that a foundation. What's the first thing you do to start your day? I start my day with gratitude. It's the first thing that I do before I even put my feet down on the floor and giving thanks for that. So I would say that my day looks like being intentional. Our spiritual selves, our spiritual bodies, and our physical bodies, and our mental well-being walk hand in hand. So if you're not supporting one, you're not supporting the other. Because all of these things have to work together. We know that when they don't, we feel unbalanced. In closing, I'd like to thank my guests, Nana Inyo, and share the following information. If you need to connect with resources in your community but don't know where to look, PA211 is a great place to start. You can dial 211 or text your zip code to 898-211 to talk with a resource specialist for free. If the situation happens to be more urgent, you can dial 988 for the Suicide and Crisis Hotline. You are not alone. What we're listening to now is Nana Enyo singing with the percussion ensemble Voices of Africa. They're performing the song Akiwowo by Baba Olatunji. This song tells a story of a man traveling on a train bringing supplies and wisdom to everyone he meets. Near the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, 
the federal government made extra money available to low-income households enrolled in the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, also known as SNAP. But those emergency allotments ended last month. According to the Pennsylvania Department of Human Services, that change affected about 2 million people in Pennsylvania, with the average household losing $181 per month. 60% of those SNAP recipients have children in their households. In our last episode, Block by Block reporter Unique Marie talked with Lydia Gottesfeld from Community Legal Services about the end of extended benefits for food assistance. And for this episode, Unique spoke with somebody who's personally affected. Letitia Williams heads a household of four. Before the pandemic happened, me and my family were receiving SNAP benefits for food. It wasn't a lot. It was two twelve a month, and I have a family of four. So that was able to add to the groceries. But then during the pandemic, the SNAP benefit had went up tremendously. So that was very helpful for me because I was able to provide more food for my family and a lot more healthier food rather than before when the budget was so little. Every month we really couldn't choose certain foods to eat, especially um, healthy foods. But now, since they took that extra benefit away, it has definitely impacted my family again because now I have to choose, you know, every month, well, which healthier food are we going to eat this month or which one aren't we going to eat? And then I have to shop around at different markets to try and find the best price for food rather than just shopping in my local market that gives me a whole bunch of different healthier choices. Like an example of that is my kids, they love fruit. They love eating all different types of fruit. But the fruit at my particular market in my neighborhood is very, very expensive. And I can't afford to get it. So then I have to go to different neighborhoods and price the fruit out differently. So with the extra stamps, it did help being able to buy more fruit and also have my kids and my family be able to try different fruits that they normally wouldn't be able to try, like dragon fruit, because the price is so high on it. But the stamps help fill that price point. Block by Block is produced by Kathy Brown, Felicia Kasher, E. Marie Lambert, Roxanne Logan, Unique Myrie, and us, Robin Markle and Laura Rosenbach. Kathy Brown is our board operator tonight. Brad Linder is Radio News Managing Editor for WPPM. Peter Liu is Radio Operations Manager, and Allison Durham is WPPM's Radio Program Manager. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode of Block by Block, featuring more stories about issues affecting life in the Philly region. And you can find past episodes of the show on Philly Cam SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you find your podcasts.